Take a Bible out this morning. Find the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. There's some notes in the bulletin. If you'd like to follow along on the outline this morning. In Philippians 3, we're halfway through the book of Philippians. We have covered two chapters. It took 10 Sunday mornings to cover the first two chapters of Philippians. We have two chapters to go. It's going to take 10 Sunday mornings to finish the rest of this book. I feel like as a preacher, I need to start off with one word of clarification and maybe a little bit of apology. If you look at Philippians 3, verse 1, you notice that Paul who was also a preacher, starts off with the word, finally. And he's halfway through the book. And I just want to say, I know that preachers use the, it is a nasty, dirty trick. I can admit it and confess it to you this morning. When you look around and people are kind of dozing off and they're getting restless, you say, I got one more thing, one more thing. And you know you got like five more things. But you just say it to try to, Try to pull them in. So I hope I don't do that too often. And in all honesty, I hope you realize that that's not what Paul's doing. Even though he starts off with this word finally and he's only halfway through the letter, uh, he is not using this dirty preacher trick. When he says finally in verse 1, this is on your notes, he is transitioning to the last section of the book, not signaling the end of the book. And really finally, the word finally is not the best translation of the Greek for what Paul actually says. Really, a a better translation might be something like, I have one last thing I want to bring up with you, or one last thing I want to talk to you about. And it takes him a couple of chapters to say what he wants to say, but he's bringing up one last issue, one last critical issue in this letter that he's writing to the church in Philippi. And if you want to understand that issue, you kind of have to back up to the book of Acts. And we're going to do that just for a little bit. We're not going to read through Acts. I've given you some verses, and you can look up some of these passages. I just want you to understand some of the backstory that builds up to this last half of Philippians. The book of Acts tells the story, many of you know this, of how the gospel moved from Jews to Gentiles. So if you look at Acts chapter 1 through 7, it's basically the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus, spreading among Jewish people in and around Jerusalem. That's about the extent of the story. It starts in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and it kind of spreads through the city, spreads to surrounding areas, but it is a movement initially in Acts 1 to 7 among Jewish people. And then in Acts 8, moving on to about chapter 14, it just, there's a shift. And you notice it if you're reading through the scriptures and you're tracking along. And it starts in chapter 8, where a guy named Philip goes to preach the gospel in Samaria. The Samaritans were sort of a, a biracial people, a mixed race people, part Jewish, part non-Jewish. And this guy Philip, he goes to Samaria and he starts to preach to not pure-blooded Jewish people. That was a new thing. And then he's sort of traveling around, Philip is, and the Holy Spirit sort of arranges this meeting where he shares the gospel with somebody from Ethiopia. And scholars kind of debate, was that a Jewish person who lived in Ethiopia or was it an Ethiopian person? But again, this is a little bit different. The gospel is starting to go outside of this Jewish circle. Acts chapter 9, you read about the conversion of a man named Saul, who we know went on to become the apostle to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, Peter, 
a Jew has a vision where God sends him to share the gospel with a man named Cornelius who was not a Jew. Now we're not just going to Samaritans like half-blood people. We're going to fully, completely non-Jewish people. And Peter goes and he shares the gospel with Cornelius. And not only does he share the gospel with him, but he baptizes him and his family. That was kind of a big deal. This is just something new for these Jewish Christians, for this Jewish church to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. For thousands of years, we've had these lines drawn around Israel as God's people. Now we're just going to bring these Jewish people in. So in Acts 11, right after 10, Peter has to give an account. Like the authorities want to know, wait a minute, wait a minute, you baptized a bunch of Gentiles? What's going on here? And Peter, I'm paraphrasing what Peter has to say, but basically he says, look, I preached the gospel to them. They believed the truth about Jesus and the Holy Spirit fell on them, the Gentiles, just like it fell on us on the day of Pentecost. And you read that and you understand it's not so much about the speaking in tongues part that we ought to replicate today. It's about God showing Peter and the church, this is genuine, this is real. These people need to be brought into the church just as they are when they receive Jesus Christ. So that's Acts 11. And you can keep reading. There's other things that happen in chapter uh, 12 and 13 and on to 14. Basically, it all kind of boils up to Acts 15. And there's two sides in this sort of running debate about Peter baptizing these Gentiles and more and more Gentiles getting saved. And the debate goes like this. You've got a group of Jewish Christians who say, we're, we're happy for these Gentiles to accept Jesus. We want them to be saved. But in order for them to do that, they have to become Jews, meaning all of these Old Testament, Old Covenant laws that we've been living by for all these hundreds, thousands of years, they've got to keep them all. They've got to become Jewish. And you've got this other group over here that says, well, I don't know about that. It just seems like God's grace was poured out on these people. They re- received the Holy Spirit just like we did. And it seems like all we should do is call them to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. And then we should baptize them and they should be part of it. And they don't really have to worry about all those old covenant laws. And this debate is sort of grinding back and forth. And it reaches a boiling point in Acts 15. Acts 15 describes the first church council. It was held in Jerusalem, and basically they got together to have this debate about how Jewish do these new Gentile Christians have to be? How many of these Old Testament laws do they actually have to keep? And like I said, you've got on one side a group that we call today the Judaizers, the Judaizers. And these guys say, you've got to keep all the Old Testament laws if you want to follow Jesus, all of them. You've got this other group over here that says, you need to repent of your sin, turn away from it, and believe the truth about Jesus and follow him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And they're arguing back and forth. And you can read in Acts 15, there's some heavyweight names that get thrown around and they all come down on the same side. Peter, Paul, and James all say, these Gentiles do not have to keep all of the Old Testament, Old Covenant laws in order to follow Jesus. They have to turn from their sin and they have to believe the truth about Jesus. That's all that we're going to require of them. Now look, let's be honest. For a lot of the laws in the Old Testament, this was really not that big a deal, okay? It's just not that big a deal. So we say, you can't worship idols anymore, okay? 
No more idols if I'm going to be a Christian. Easy. Check that one off. Old Testament law. You can't marry your sister. Well, okay, scratch it off the list. No big deal. Won't marry my sister. I'm going to follow Jesus. You can't have lobster or bacon. Say, eh. No more red lobster. No more breakfast. Okay, okay, okay. Not that big a deal. I'm going to just be honest with you. This is the one that got them. And this one became symbolic for all the rest of the issue. It's the issue of circumcision for grown Gentile men. And this group of Judaizers said, you got to do it. You have to do it. You have to keep all of the Old Testament, Old Covenant laws. And all these Gentiles said, you know, look, taking the Sabbath off, we can handle that. And uh, not eating certain foods, maybe. And not going to marry my sister, okay. But now you're kind of getting personal here. And they started to push back. And you understand, it wasn't just that one issue. It was that one issue being representative of the larger question, do these Gentiles coming into the church, do they have to have Jesus plus a bunch of good works in order to be saved? That's the fundamental question. Is Jesus alone enough, or do you really need Jesus plus a bunch of good things that you add to that. So that's going to lead us to the big idea, not only of this morning, but really of the next couple of weeks. Paul urged the Philippians to stand for the truth of the gospel. All of that debate is in the back of Paul's mind. The Philippians know about it. And Paul is saying, look, you know what Peter, James, and uh, Peter, James, and Paul came, the conclusion they came to in Acts 15. That's where we're standing. You do not have to keep these laws. Salvation is in Christ alone. It's through faith alone. It's by God's grace alone. That's where we're taking our stand on the gospel. You don't need Jesus plus a bunch of good works. You just need Jesus. And he's telling the Philippians, you have got to stand firm with that message. You might have to fight for it. You might have to to argue for it. You may have to stand up to people who say other than what you've heard from us, but you have got to stand for the gospel message. And it's such a simple message that sometimes we cloud up with all this stuff of we need Jesus plus something else. The gospel message is a message that the holy God made a way for sinful people like us to be brought back into a relationship with him, and that happens through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, not for his own sins, but for ours. And the Bible says when you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus, you are given new life. You're forgiven. And it's that simple. And Paul is saying you have got to stand up for that gospel message. Don't buy into anybody who wants to twist it, add to it, take away from it. You've got to stand up. For the gospel. So, over the next few weeks, we're going to see Paul arguing with the Philippians, really encouraging the Philippians to stand for the gospel. This morning, we're going to look at the first three verses in chapter three. Next week, we're going to pick up really in the middle of a thought. It's hard to to divide some of these passages up, but we're going to look this morning at Philippians 3 1 to 3. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. 
Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's pray. Father, give us understanding this morning. Give us wisdom as we think about these words that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, as we think about these words that your spirit inspired, as we think about these words that have authority over our lives and over our church today. Father, help us to see the truth. Help us to apply it to our lives individually and to our life as a church family. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One simple question. How does a church stand on the truth of the gospel? How do we stand for the truth of the gospel? Four thoughts. Number one, we rejoice. You should have seen that one coming. The whole series is called Rejoice because Paul keeps bringing it up over and over and over and over again. And he brings it up in this passage as he's starting this new section. And he's telling them to stand up for the truth of the gospel. And he starts off and he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. If you're counting, that's the sixth time that Paul has used that word just in this short book of Philippians. We're only halfway through. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Worship with joy. Worship with joy. He says it over and over and over again. And at the beginning of this new section where he's going to call them to stand for the truth of the gospel, the first thing he says is you have to be people who worship with joy. Look, in the United States, we get out of balance really easy on this issue when it comes to standing for the truth of the gospel and worshiping with joy. We really get out of balance fast. We have a lot of people who are good at the rejoicing part, but they do it with no discernment. Zero. And we have a whole lot of other folks who are watching. They're trying to stand for the truth of the gospel, but they do it with no joy. And in the United States, evangelical church by and large, Baptist churches by and large, we tend to lean one of these directions. Either we just want to say, look, we just want to worship God, we just want to love other people, and we just sort of go in blindly with no discernment to error or falsehood, or we're so hypersensitive to error and falsehood, we live our lives with absolutely no worship and certainly no joy. So on the one hand, you've got people in the United States, in churches, in Odessa, Texas, people like you and me, well-meaning Christians they just sort of get blown by any wind of doctrine that comes along. If they bought it at the Christian bookstore, they think it's gospel truth. Mardell sold it to me. Family Christian sold it to me. Well, it said it was a faith-based film. Where it said this, well, the author said this, well, a pastor said it, well, I heard it at a church service. And they just sort of get blown around by any wind or whiff or any hint of craziness. They just sort of blow with it and ride with it, and they just sort of take it all in. And in the end, here's the tragedy. Their worship, their rejoicing, worshiping with joy, it becomes idolatrous because they have absolutely no filter for what is truth and error. Listen, as a Christian in the United States in 2017, you must be against some things. You have to. Where the Bible draws lines, you have to draw lines. So yes, we want to worship, but you've got to do it with discernment. You've got to take 
that latest book that comes out or that latest movie that comes out or that latest song that comes out, whatever it is, and you've got to say, I've got to filter this through Scripture. I just can't swallow this because I trust the author or I trust a bookstore or I trust a publisher or I trust a church. You've got to have discernment. Then you've got a whole lot of other people, and I don't mean that that was you and this is you. I just mean you've got a whole lot of other people in the United States who are like on DEFCON 3 heresy watch. Like they are waiting for heretics to drop out of every bush or behind every corner and they're just waiting to slam them and oh, I told you and these are the kind of people that are always like the, wor- the world is so bad, the United States is the world, everything, their culture is so dark and it's disgusting and everything's bad and they're just looking for things to be against and they're negative and just to be honest with you, they're kind of grumpy You really don't like to be around them because they're really not for anything. They're just against everything. And these are the people who are watching. They're trying to stake their claim out on the truth. They don't have any joy in their life. And right out of the gate, Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, and I think he's saying it to us, look, you're going to have to stand for the gospel. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have to be against some things and draw lines where the Bible draws lines. And you have to have discernment to do that. At the same time, don't be a spiritual grump. Don't be miserable to be around. Don't be that kind of Christian. Somebody told me this morning, they were on vacation. There was this street preacher guy who was standing up. And it sounded like he's just standing on the corner like yelling at people, pointing his finger at people, telling people how wicked they are, and this is sinful, and you shouldn't do that. And here's the truth. Probably a lot of what he said is true. But he's a grump. That puts people off. And Paul says, listen, stand for the truth. Don't back down one inch, but do it rejoicing. Do it worshiping with joy. Look, I know we live in a dark world culture that is not getting any closer to Jesus Christ as the days go by. And I know that can be discouraging. Sometimes I turn on the news and I think, I just got to take my family and move to the woods because this is not good. We're just going to move to the wilderness. I'll leave a note on the door at the church and say, I'll be in the woods if you need me. It's going to be a long ways away because there's no woods around here, but I'm going to the woods. It's terrible. It's so bad. And it's discouraging sometimes, right? You just think, how much worse could it get? Like, if this is where we're at now, what's it going to be next year? In the midst of that discouragement, because I feel it, and I'm guessing you feel it sometimes, you got to hear Paul and the rest of the Bible calling you to rejoice. To be somebody who, in the midst of all that frustration and darkness and ugliness, worships with joy. Go back and read the book of Psalms. I I jotted down a few verses, Psalm 32 and Psalm 35, close to each other. You can look them up later. They both contain commands to rejoice. It's not optional. It's commanded. Rejoice. Worship with joy. You remember Luke chapter 2 when the angels came and were talking to the shepherds? We have good news of great joy. Yes, it's dark, and it's getting darker every day, but we have a message that is good news that ought to produce great joy in us. 
John 15, Jesus says, I want your joy to be full. I don't want you to be miserable people. John 17, Jesus praying the night before he was crucified. He prayed that we would share his joy. So yes, we're going to stand for the truth. We're not going to be grouchy as we do it. We're going to do it rejoicing. Secondly, how do we stand for the truth as a church? We talk about the gospel over and over and over again. And when I first made the handout, I added a few more overs, over and over and over and over. And I said, okay, i got to save some space. Three overs is enough. You talk about it over and over and over again. Look what Paul says in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. That's a way to get somebody's attention. I'm about to tell you something you've already heard. It's interesting to read some commentaries. Some scholars say Paul had already written this church letters, letters we don't have in the Bible. We know Paul was a missionary for 16 years. We know he was busy with correspondence, keeping in touch with other churches. There's even some letters that he wrote that are mentioned in the Bible that we don't have. Other letters he wrote to the church in Corinth. A letter he wrote to a church in Laodicea. doesn't mean we're missing those books. We have all the books that God wants us to have. But Paul wrote all kinds of letters. And so some scholars say he's already written to them another letter to the Philippians. And he's talked about this stuff in those letters. And this other group of scholars say, no, no, no. Remember, he, he was in Philippi. He was with them face to face. And they talked about this stuff. And he preached it. And he taught it. And they went over it. And they've discussed it. Either way, it's fascinating that Paul says, I'm about to write to you the same old stuff we've already talked about or I've already written about. Same old stuff. It's nothing new. And it is no trouble for me to do it. And it's safe for you if I do it. We just talk about the same thing over and over and over and over again. You know, in the United States, churches, many churches are driven by novelty. you got to have the newest. Every time a new TV series comes out, we're going to preach a sermon series with that TV title on it because we want to be current, and we want to be trendy, and we want to be new. Every time there's a popular song, we're going to have a five-week series based on the name of this song because we, we want new. Everything we do has got to be new, and we sort of have a disdain for that's old, that's how we used to do it, and we want to, everything's got to be new, cutting-edge, fresh, exciting. And I'm going to be honest with you. As a pastor of a church, I struggle with this just because I look around and I see other churches doing it. I don't mean I struggle with it like I just want to say you guys are losers. I struggle with wanting to do it myself give you one example. You know Easter's right around the corner, right? Easter's coming. Big Sunday. All the CEOs show up. Christmas and Easter only. They're all going to be here. And as a pastor, you say, hey, Easter's coming. It's got to be good. It's got to be really good. What are we going to do? What, what can we do this Easter? I've already been thinking this in my brain. I think it's got to be exciting, and it can't be like last year. Last year we did this. It's got to be different. And every year I start to think this, I just end up slapping myself. Like, what do I have to give you that's new? I'm just going to give you the total spoiler alert for Easter. Are you ready? We're going to meet in this room. We're going to sing songs about Jesus. And we're going to talk about the resurrection. That's it. That's all we're going to do. And it may not be the flashiest thing you've ever seen. 
It may not be totally cutting edge. I may not have like a catchy sermon title based on some popular TV show or anything like that. We're just going to come together. We're going to sing about the gospel and we're going to talk about the gospel. And that's what we do every single Sunday. Listen, if you see me stand on this platform and I start saying new stuff, you need a new pastor. I don't have anything new for you. Nothing. Everything I have is really, really old. And we're just going to keep talking about it over and over and over and over again. You guys remember the movie Karate Kid? How many of you remember that movie? How many of you, when you think about Karate Kid, you think about Miyagi and daniel Sun? Raise your hand. How many of you think of Mr. Han and Dre? Raise your hand. A few hands, not very many. If somebody even made a bad noise about the new Karate Kid. Who did that? That was kind of ugly. Chris Ray did that? Oh my, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Look, you remember the scene in either movie... In the original, it's the wax on, wax off, right? You just need to do this over and over and over again. And he knows he won't just stand there and do this, so I'm going to give him something else to do. And he's just doing it over and over and over again. And if you've seen the newer movie, it's hang your jacket up, right? Makes him pick it up, hang it up, put it on, take it off, hang it up, put it on, just over and over and over, repetition. In both of those movies, whichever one you like, it's learning through repetition, It's doing the same thing a hundred thousand million times so that you know it. That's what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi. We're going to talk about the same things over and over and over again. I don't have any great life tips to make your life better that are worth you getting up on a Sunday morning and coming here. What I have to tell you about is the holy God who made a way for a sinner like you to be reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. That's all I have to offer you. And we're going to talk about it over and over and over again. Repetition is important. This is Deuteronomy 6, right? You remember Deuteronomy 6. This is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey." Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise all the time over and over and over the same old stuff you just keep talking about it you just keep talking about it over and over bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontless between your eyes you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates you are going to learn these commandments through repetition and that's what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi that's what he's saying to us this is why it's so important that you and I are faithful in going to church We live in the Bible Belt where you hear all the time, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't really go to church. Well, I'm a Christian, but you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. 
And Paul, I think, would just want to slap those people around and say, no, 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 you need to go. And you need to be reminded of the same thing over and over and over and over again. You need to hear the good news about Jesus every single week. You need to sing about it every single week. You can't just put it on autopilot and think that you're going to be a faithful follower of Christ without the repetition. So Paul says right here, we're going to talk about the gospel over and over and over again. Number three, we always look out for false teaching. Three times in verse two, he says, look out. Look out, look out, look out. And we've got to start with a little cultural clarification because we think of dogs and we think about pets and we buy treats for our dogs and Halloween costumes for our dogs and fancy pillows for our dogs and all kinds of, we love our dogs, okay? In Paul's day, they did not love dogs, okay? In Paul's day, in the ancient world, especially in Jewish culture, dogs were seen as dirty scavengers, And if you've been on one of our mission trips to Kenya, you've sort of seen this idea. I've been on mission trips to parts of South America where you've seen this idea. People don't think of dogs as pets, as lovable, lovable, kind, cuddly animals. They think of them as just dirty, unclean, bottom dwellers, gutter scavengers, just filth. And they treat them that way. And you gotta understand, when Paul says in verse 2, look out for the dogs... That's a major insult. It doesn't really translate to our culture because we don't usually call people that, meaning it as an insult. But in Paul's day, that is a major slam. And everything he says in verse 2 is highly ironic. It's ironic because the Jews, their rabbis, their teachers, always referred to Gentiles as dogs. That was their derogatory term for Gentiles. And now those Gentiles are coming into the church being forgiven of their sins by Jesus Christ, becoming equal members in the church, and Paul turns the insult around on them on these Judaizers, and he says, these Judaizers who think the Gentiles need to become Jewish, they're a bunch of dogs. Like, I thought this week about how do you, how do you communicate that idea with the intensity, and it's also Sunday morning church appropriate. And I don't know that I'm going to exactly capture the intensity, but I'm shooting for Sunday morning appropriate, okay? How about like dirt bag or scumbag? Like you chuckle at those, so that tells me I didn't hit it on intensity, but nobody's scowling at me, so maybe I got Sunday morning okay. That's what he's saying to these guys. These guys are the worst of the worst, The dogs, in Paul's mind, it's not the Gentiles, it's the Judaizers who say you need Jesus plus good works. Paul says those guys are the worst, the worst. And then he says they're evildoers, same guys, evildoers, which again is ironic because they would say we're not evildoers, we're the ones who keep God's commandments, all of them. Paul says no. You've missed the whole point of the commandments. Commandments were there to point you to Jesus, and you've totally missed it. Because you want to take a little bit of Jesus and add your good works to it. You're evildoers. You're dogs. And then he really insults them big time. He says, you mutilate the flesh. Remember, the one issue that stood for all the others was this issue of circumcision. You must do it. You must have this mark in the flesh. And Paul says, you're not keeping the commandment. You're mutilating yourself. You've totally missed the point. 
Paul says you've got to look out for these false teachers. Look out, look out, look out. They don't wear name tags, right? They don't have like team shirts that say false teacher on the front. They don't walk into the room with entrance music. You remember entrance music from pro wrestling? When I was a kid, I loved pro wrestling. And the most exciting part about pro wrestling is the entrance music. Comes on loud and I know who that is. They're coming in or somebody's music. You know immediately who's it going to be. And false teachers don't have that. They don't walk in with like a boombox blaring some song that says, we're false teachers, we're false teachers. They sneak in. And they creep in. Jude says it this way, if you turn to the end of the into the New Testament, right before the book of Revelation, Jude says it like this. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That's what we're talking about, right? Standing for the gospel, contending for the faith. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. They don't have a name tag on. They don't have a false teacher t-shirt on. They don't have entrance music that says, I'm about to tell you lies. They creep in unnoticed. Long ago, they were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people. Here it is. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Look, I, I already made fun of the people who are on high alert, always looking for false teachers, grumpy, miserable to be around. But you got to look. you got to watch. You do have to be on alert. It doesn't mean you have to be a grouch and you have to be mean to everybody, miserable to be around. But you have got to watch for false teaching if you're going to stand for the truth of the gospel. So we're going to look out. One last idea, number four. How do we do it? We worship by the Spirit and we exalt in Christ. He says in verse 3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory, or some translations say exalt, in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Here's the thing. The way you and I ultimately stand for the gospel is we make it the absolute center of our lives. We make it the most important thing in our lives. It's not by arguing with everybody and being critical of everybody who doesn't exactly line up with our our thoughts or preferences. And it's certainly not by accepting anybody and everything and any idea and every idea that blows along and we just sort of like a flag in the wind go with it. The way we stand for the gospel is we make it the center of who we are. We become people who worship by the Spirit. Jesus said to the woman uh, at the well in Samaria, God is looking for people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. We've got to become those kind of people who are so consumed with worshiping Jesus that the distractions and the nonsense out there in the world doesn't seem all that appealing to us. We've got we to be the kind of people who exalt or glory in Jesus, meaning we don't hold up our own good works, our own spiritual pedigree. Paul's about to talk about that. We'll see it next week. We don't hold up how good we are compared to other people. We hold up Jesus. And we say, I don't have anything good 
to contribute to this situation. I have sin to contribute. And Jesus is enough. He lived a life of perfect obedience for me. And he died on a cross taking the penalty for my sins. And we tell people that and we live that. We exult in it. If you like hymns, you remember the hymn Rock of Ages. It's written by a guy named Augustus Toplady. He lived in England a long time ago, 1700s. There's a cool story you can get online and you can, you can Google Augustus Toplady Rock of Ages and you can find the rock I'm about to tell you about. But the story goes, he was out in a thunderstorm, 1700s, it's a long time ago. And he's traveling in a severe storm and he sort of gets scared and he goes and he takes refuge in a cliff, in a rock. You can visit it today. You can find pictures of it online. And he's there in that rock taking shelter from the storm around him and he gets sort of a a brain flash. Starts to think about a song and he starts to write down the words to a hymn. And the words that he started to scribble down were the words to the hymn Rock of Ages. This is part of it. This is a guy who gets what Paul's trying to say, that we don't have any good thing to offer to God, but we are people who center our lives on the gospel and worship in the Spirit and exult in Jesus. He said, Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. In my hand, no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. He gets it. He gets it. The center of my life has got to be the cross, where God did for me what I would never be able to do to myself. And ultimately, that's the most important way that we stand on the truth of the gospel. And that brings us all the way back to that first idea of of rejoicing, worshiping with joy. And he comes back to that and he says, you've got to be people who worship in the Spirit and who exult in Jesus, in who he is and in, in what he has done for sinners like me and you. So this morning, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for our church that as individuals, we would be the kind of people who stand for the truth of the gospel, and that as a church, we would be the kind of church that stands for the truth of the gospel. So you bow, and I'll pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we're grateful for the scriptures. We're grateful for this book of Philippians that we've been studying We're grateful for this encouragement, this warning from Paul, from your spirit. Father, we pray that in our lives as individuals and in our life as a church family, that we would stand for the truth of the gospel, the same gospel over and over and over again, that we would be people who rejoice in it, who exalt in Jesus Christ and glory in Jesus Christ, not in what we can do for you, but in what you have done for us. Father, And we pray that you would help us to watch and to look out and that you would give us wisdom and discernment to spot false teaching and to know how to respond to it. Father, I pray for folks in the room. I pray especially for those who have never put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. And I pray that this morning they would come with nothing in their hands, only clinging to the cross, trusting in the good news. It's good news that gives us great joy that Jesus has done everything that needed to be done for us to be brought back into a relationship with you. Father, for those of us who have 
experienced your grace and who know Jesus Christ, even as we sing this morning, we want to worship by the power of the Spirit and we want to glory in Jesus Christ and celebrate the gospel. Father, be honored as we sing together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.